of the issues with uh, VPNs nowadays is that they are controlled. It is a private network indeed because it's controlled and centralized under you know our organization or company or whatever that is. So they literally controls all the servers, all the infrastructure that they are providing you. And I think uh, that is one of the things that you want to avoid, right? Like you want to avoid have a single point of failure or a single point of trust. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about online privacy. There is a question out there, and it's a simple one, that if you ask it, you will likely receive dozens of overlapping but distinct answers, all depending on who you ask. For example, if you ask this question to a VPN service, you might learn about obscuring your IP address and hiding your internet activity from your internet service provider. If you ask this question to one of the many privacy-forward web browsers, like Mozilla or Brave, you might learn about third-party tracking, cookies, massive data collection, and an advertising process called real-time bidding. And if you ask someone who works on surveillance issues at, say, the American Civil Liberties Union or Electronic Frontier Foundation, you'll likely have to suffer through more than an hour of esoteric conversation about the NSA, the FBI, the Patriot Act, the USA Freedom Act, Section 702, Section 215, backdoor searches, which are a thing, and about the importance of metadata. And I use that last example affectionately because... I used to be that person that spoke at length about those things. And when I say used to, I of course mean I still am. But, you know, it's just under the right circumstances, which is anyone, anywhere asking me about surveillance. Could be at a wedding. Could be at a birthday party. For a child. And truthfully, I've done this during jury selection, and I spoke so long about metadata uh, that I eventually was dismissed, which, hey, you know, you want to do your civic duty, but also I had work that day. But we're getting off track here. The question, right, the question that we're talking about, it isn't about government surveillance. It's, as you may have figured out by now, what is online privacy? Or what does it mean to you? We've talked about online privacy a few times on this show. We've spoken to experts about anonymity online, about invasive advertising models, and of course, about VPNs, the increasingly popular online tool for consumers to hide some of what they're doing online. But today, we wanted to go beyond the VPN because we know how pervasive the advertising for these products can be. We see the YouTube ads, we hear the promises. But we also can't deny that there's an entire world of online privacy that exists beyond a smart choice in VPNs. And we can't deny that even for those using a VPN, there are still many ways that they can be tracked online. Today, to help us understand what it means to be truly private online, and if such a thing even exists, how can it be attained? We're speaking with Isabella Bagueros, executive director for the Tor Project, the Seattle-based nonprofit that maintains the development of the anonymous browsing tool Tor. Isabella, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. And yes, uh, thank you for having me here. I'm really happy to join the show. We are so happy to have you here as well. With that, let's just kind of get right into it. I wanted to start with that question that I opened with at the start of the show. Write a seemingly simple question that can elicit Dozens of answers, again, just kind of depending on who you ask. And that question, of course, is what does online privacy mean to you? All right. So first of all, I want to focus on what privacy means to me, right? What is privacy? And I feel that over the years, my best definition for privacy is everything that makes you the human being that you are. Like (laughs) think about the human being that you are. The things that you like, the things that you don't like, the things that you are afraid of, the things that you want to accomplish, the things that you hope for others, you know, and uh, all those things that make the human being that you are, for me, it's privacy. But beyond that, who do I share those things with? And what are like the details of those things that I'm sharing with? That choice also goes back to the definition of privacy. So it's not like 
just are the things that defines me as the human being I am, but who do I choose to share and what I'm sharing with? So that goes for the real world and goes to the online world as well. So I don't see any difference, you know, for the online and for the real world. I want to preserve my privacy and I want to control, right? Like the things I want to share online as well as like in the real life. So that would be my answer to that question. And I like it. How I do that on the online world is a whole other conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because I think that there's a lot of folks out there who can instinctively understand exactly what you said there about it is what you choose to share. It's what you have power to share and who to share it with. And there's some stuff where you can kind of be like, well, I know how to do that. I I know how to choose to not put photos online, for instance. I know how to not make an account with with a service that I have no interest in. And those are things that you can sort of like opt out of if you just have no interest in them. But there are probably like a bunch of other things, right? like your web browsing activity and just things that you are buying online, your shopping behavior, your IP address. And let's dig into that a little bit. Like you were saying, you know, how you how you actually control those things online. That's a different conversation. How do you control those things online? Exactly, right? Like, so the hardest part of like answering that question is, right, like a little bit of what you were saying of, uh, the things that you don't know how to choose, you know, like you don't know how to control. You don't, you might not even know it's happening, right? The choice that I think today most people are going for are tools, tools that can help you out and cover the basis for you, right? And I think what I would go about if I didn't have a lot of information was at least to try to understand how to choose the best tool for me, right? Like to use. And I feel like some people, when they are talking about messaging tools, you can go between a few options out there, right? Like the most common ones, Telegram, WhatsApp, Signal. Mm -hmm. And um, in that example, I would say that uh, the best way to explain the people how to choose is to doing a metrics and comparing certain things, right? Like, and and I think like uh, some of those things, are on this world of technology, right? Like um, about trust and all of that, uh, valid for other solutions as well, right? Like uh, it is open source, you know, like what is the motivation of who built the tool? Is there like a, a for-profit motivation behind it? You know, like things that, you know, it could in- influence the process of making the tool and the decision-making of the tool, right? Like, so I feel like also auditing of the tool, right? Like the ability to audit and review what is happening, what is doing, storage, what is being storage, the information, and, and there's other details like that that people can use as a way to guide them on those choices, right? Like, so in a way, I feel like I would go a little bit in that way, right? Like to understand how I can protect my privacy online. So I think like sometimes I am using the internet to communicate with someone. Sometimes I'm using the internet to retrieve information, right? Like access a website, watch a video. Sometimes I'm using the internet to publish information. Sometimes I'm using the internet to extend, right? Like to do work with people, and extend files and things like that. So I feel like each of those moments are the moments that the people will stop and think about the privacy, right? Like matter and what I'm, my actions are doing and what I want to protect, right? Like, and on that, ma- on that moment is where probably I would tell you, right? Like, depending on the moment, that is a different tool for you to use, right? Like to help you on those actions that I was describing that are like the most common actions people do online anyways, right? I thought it was interesting there how quickly we got into, again, that that it's not just what you choose to share, but it's also that a second choice has to be made about tools, right? And we went into things like looking at whether they're getting audits from third parties. Uh, we're looking at what their motivations are, right? If a group is being funded by profit or is beholden to like shareholders, they're just going to have different motivations for developing their tool than if they were like a nonprofit funded by volunteers or funded by donors. And we quickly went into messages, right? Into into messaging there. Uh, like you said, there's Telegram, there's WhatsApp, there's Signal. There's already, there's already so many choices in like one sphere of privacy. And then folks have to 
have to like make that choice for all the different spheres that they engage in in daily life. Like you said, that you're using the internet for just so many different things. Sometimes it's just to collaborate. Sometimes it's to publish. I thought that was good because we talked to some folks and we don't talk to a lot of folks who who are concerned about publishing. And I think that's a huge part, right? There's a lot of folks out there who are doing human rights work, who are doing journalist work, journalistic work, and they have to worry about like how they can be traced if they are publishing things. I think that's a I think it's a wonderful thing that we don't really touch on too much. Before we get into the web of choices, because I think that can be kind of difficult for folks. I wanted to bring it back, like I said, to the VPN. And as much of today's show is about going beyond the VPN for online privacy, what are people who only use a VPN lacking when they try to stay private online? So in other words, you know, what types of privacy invasions are they still susceptible to, even though they are using a VPN? Yeah, so I feel like one of the things like to think about when using a VPN is the design, right? Like of the solution. What is a VPN, right? Like a veto private network. So like it's a network that is not the public one that I'm using, you know, like that other people are using, or it's a way for me to go through before I want to get to my endpoint, right? Like my website that I want to access or something. So I want to have this between me and my endpoint. So it can kind of like protect me or uh, hide me or whatever, right? Like it's my goal by using it. If that is your goal, if that's what you want, so you want a solution to protect you that you can trust. And one of the issues with uh, VPNs nowadays is that they are controlled and it is a private network indeed because it's controlled and centralized under, you know, our organization or company or whatever that is. So they literally controls all the servers, all the infrastructure that they are providing you. I think uh, that is one of the things that you want to avoid, right? Like you want to avoid have a single point of failure or a single point of trust. Right. Like if you're talking about wanting to that type of protection and you wanted to trust what you're using, you definitely want to have a solution that nobody, for instance, store, right? Like it's a decentralized network. So like that is nobody who is part of this network that controls everything and that can see everything. So therefore could be a point of failure, you know, like uh, in this uh, trust relationship. Once you're using most of the com servers out there for you know VPNs, they are a central like that. They are a centralized network that is controlled by one entity. So therefore, and this is I'm not saying about you know like you can have a VPN that has servers in different continents, you know, and they are all over, you know, like geolocated, but like they still control it by one single entity, and that uh, entity it gets worse if that entity is also, right, like uh, not transparency or running code that you don't know what's happening, you know, like claiming yeah. encryptions and or not even having a clear no data, uh, right? Like Oh, yeah, like no logs policy. No logs policy or anything like that. So it just get worse from like uh, <laughs> you can add more on the top of that depending on how they do their business, right? That's what I think when people are using VPN, they only think about like, okay, who is watching me is not seeing my original IP address anymore. Probably like my geolocation is protected. That is probably, you know, like uh, encryption helping with my connection, you know, like uh, protecting my connection. But you also need to think about who is providing the service to you. What is the track record of that company? You know, like, uh, and I, I think like uh, this is gas complicated, right? Like, because... I need to admit, right, like most of this information to begin with is in English, you know, so there's a huge language barrier for someone to get to understand all of these things that I'm talking about. The other day we have VPNs um, in the media having issues, right, like about uh, being purchased by other companies or having employees, right, like that had uh, previous jobs that were spies and uh, related to contracts like that. So I, I feel like uh, understanding who is the business that like who is behind the business that like the product that you're using, even if it's free, even if it's not paying, but like w- what is happening here is extremely important as one step of being cautious as uh, trying to find a solution for privacy for you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the thing you were mentioning there, you know, for folks who 
haven't been following VPN news, which is, I'd say, 99% of the world. (laughs) The story there, right, is that a very popular VPN provider, a currently employed executive at that company, was charged by the U.S. government with uh, basically with helping the the government of the United Arab Emirates of running surveillance. And when a company that is that says it is committed to privacy online employs someone who was, according to the government, who was working to invade the privacy of others, understandably, that's going to upset some people and probably upset some of the employees who work there. I know I would be pretty frustrated if I found out an executive at my company was doing something that I would view as antithetical to the company's mission. I wanted to understand as well here, can we just talk about the many things, the broad world of online privacy, again, that happens beyond the VPN, and and that can be ways that people are tracked online. What else can still happen to someone? Can can their browsing behavior still be bought, you know, and and traded by advertising companies? Like something as simple as that. Yes, yeah, exactly. Definitely, that can still happen with someone who is just using a VPN. There is so many other ways that a browser can be tracking you that are, you know, not necessarily directly associated with your IP address. You can be associated with your login accounts on different social media. Third-party cookies is one of those ways, you know, like when you're navigating and websites that had uh, social media share buttons, you can be tracked that way. Also, I feel like uh, people need to understand that, unfortunately, right, depending on the way that you're using, there will be different ways that you are vulnerable, right? Like, so it's never like a one thing that I tell you is going to be that thing for everything, right? Like, so <laughs> the VPN, like, uh, that is a use case for the VPN. Right? And I, I agree the VPN is quite popular because many people want a solution that they can install on the computer or the phone. And most of the people are using, right? Like the only device they actually connect to the internet, it is a mobile device in the world, you know, like they don't necessarily have a computer. The experience on mobile is completely different from the experience on when you are on the desktop that is mainly on the browser, right? So a lot of the things that you do on the browser, they become an app on the mobile, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore you do need a product that will help you route, right? The traffic of those apps and also protect you and encrypt that traffic and protect your privacy. So that functionality, it is needed, I feel like to cover certain use cases. But uh, of course, once you open your browser, even if you're using a VPN or right, like or you're routing your computer or your mobile phone through a connection like that, there are ways that the web service and other servers on the internet can still collect information about you in that browser. So there are fingerprinting, you know, there are like I said, that by cookies, there are other ways that can be collecting information from you. When you are on your messaging, on your phone, depending on what you're using as a messaging service, there are ways that they can be, even if you're using a VPN, can still be collecting and reading your information, you know, like or doing uh, behavioral analysis on the metadata of the of the interactions that you're having, if they cannot read the content of the information you're extending and correlating that with other metadata from other places on the internet that you are, you know? So I'm just trying to say that if you really care and you really want to pursue a way to be protected, I would say that trying to mix together, like as many tools, right, (laughs) would be great. I would say, right, like if I could use a browser, like Tor Browser, for instance, we wrote your connection to Tor and we also have protections in the browser, right? Like, so it's kind of like a lot of things being accomplished in this, in this tool, you know, that we built it. So I feel like uh, if you wanted to try to have like as many tools that can accomplish as many uh, things as possible, it's great. Or try to combine those things together, right? Like you can have a, an app rolling to Tor, for instance, as well. And we are thinking about that idea 
we are thinking about idea of providing a service similar to a VPN, you know, for people that it goes beyond the browser experience. So we can also have apps that are provide certain levels of privacy, right? Like open source apps that have end-to-end encryption and so forth, but they, you know, they could uh, accomplish more if they are routing themselves through Tor, not only for protection, privacy protection, but also for censorship, you know, circumvention as well. Because there are just so many ways that, like we said, you can still be tracked, you can still be followed online. Where does Tor fit in? Kind of really plainly, what what is Tor for folks who don't know? And, and what privacy does Tor provide? <laughs> so here I am, right? Like, you need to trust, you need to trust. Now I'm going to tell you to, why you should trust my product, right? Like <laughs> uh, the, Tor, the, uh, the Tor project, the Tor network, the Tor browser, right? Like, so what is Tor? Tor is a free open source software, and uh, there's two pieces of it right now. One is the network side. So you have uh, the software that is the daemon that runs, like the people can run to run a relay that will be part of this network. So we are right now we have uh, around 7,000 servers on this network, right? Like mm-hmm. run by volunteers around the world. Some of them are organizations, so they're like farms of servers, uh, nonprofit organizations that want to help with the network. And some are individuals, some are universities, but and, and some are even companies that run to support, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's very diverse and um, nobody in this network can control and see the whole traffic going on because the way when it's a user it is that when a user connects through to- or to access a website, it will go through three of these servers of the network building a secret and each of the servers uh, between each one of them, the first one with the middle, the entry point with the middle one, and then the middle one with the exit point on each of these communications, it has a layer of encryption for that specific communication. So the my communication with the entry point has a, la- a layer of encryption. The entry point with the middle node has another layer of encryption. The middle node with the exit node has another layer of encryption. So nobody knows what's going on fully. And Mm -hmm. those layers is why the Tor name comes from, the onion rotor, right? Like because of the, that idea, like that concept. What we did was to make it easier for people to use it. We forked the Firefox browser and we made it the browser able to establish the connection with the launch and establish the connection with the Tor network automatically. And on the top of that, we also modified the browser, enabling all the protections from the client side that, like we were talking before, third-party cookies isolation, also the fingerprinting protections and other protect things to protect people's privacy while also using right, like the browser to navigate the internet. So this is store in, in a sense, right? Like, but on the top of that, we created another thing called Onion Service. And Onion Service is extremely interesting because the same way, right, like the Tor network protects your privacy, right? Like you go through three servers to access the website you want to open and nobody knows where you are. The Onion Service works the same way. Like nobody access your service directly between you and the person accessing your servers, and the service can be a website, right? There are three nodes of the Tor network. So it protects who is offering the content as well, who is offering the service. And this is the type of thing that you can only access inside of the Tor network. So like uh, if you just put an address on a normal browser, it will not work. And because you meet inside of the Tor network, right? Like I'm coming from three, the service is coming from three, and we meet in the middle. I benefit from a lot of other protections. For instance, one of the benefits here is that people who are working with this technology, they can completely obfuscate metadata. And another thing, or eliminate metadata whatsoever, depending on how they build the solution. So I feel like uh, this is extremely interesting, given that there's not that many ways out there to protect people's metadata, right? Like the content that many solutions that protect content, but the metadata is still exposed. So this is, I feel like, uh, and I can talk more about what people have been doing with this, right? Like how it's being used out there in the field. But I feel like it's another little thing that comes with Tor that is extremely powerful and interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. I immediately want to hear about that, right? Because true to everything I said at the top of the show, I love talking about metadata. And for folks who who are wondering, wow, they keep saying metadata, and I have no idea what that is. And we keep referring to things as metadata or content, right? The kind of easy way to break it down is um, content. Let's Let's talk about messages here really quickly. Content are the words you say, the actual words you type to someone, or if we wanted to stretch it to like a phone call, content are the words you say out loud on the phone. Metadata is the number you called. Metadata is the time you called. Uh, Metadata is how long that phone call lasted. That's what metadata is. And the reason folks like myself love talking about metadata so much is because at a certain level, like we've said on the show, all you kind of need is metadata to find out what content was happening as a kind of brief example, right? If you are calling, this is the example we always used, if you are calling a suicide prevention hotline, you're calling them every night at, you know, I don't know, 10 p.m. and you're talking to them for 15 minutes, there's likely only one thing you're talking about. You don't have to have the words being said. Those words don't have to be shared for someone to know what was likely being said on that phone call. And so jumping back into it, this idea here that metadata can be rendered, what sounds like it can be rendered useless with both the Onion service um, and using Tor to connect things on the Onion service. Yeah, I'd love to learn more. What are folks doing with it? So there is an app called Onion Share, which is a great app. It has many things going on in there. One of it, uh, and folks can go to onionshare.org to check it out. So OnionShare was created to share files to begin with, right? So you launch the app and then you become your server. There is no third-party server. There is no cloud. There's nothing like that. And if I want to share my sh- a file with you, I will just drop the file on the app. The app will establish a connection to the Tor network and become a generator URL, an Onion address. Right, like, and the only addresses are long strings of uh, numbers, random numbers and letters, and then at the end they had dot onion. So we generate one of those that I would copy and give it to you, and you would open Tor browser and uh, paste that URL there, and you will see a download button and download the file, and uh, you are downloading it directly, right? Like my computer is serving that to you. So what this is useful for? For instance, nobody knows who I'm giving the file to. You don't know, nobody knows who you're taking the file from. So, right, like what you were talking about, your example about having a phone call, right? Where you cannot see what you, you, you cannot hear what you're speaking on the call, but you can see what time I call you, for how long we were on the phone, and all that kind of information. With this, nobody can see it. Nobody can see that, you know, because it's happening inside of Tor and is going through actually, right, like meeting in the middle. I don't even know, like, um, I mean, of course you would be knowing that you're downloading the file for me because I gave you the URL. So you're assuming that, right, like it's being server from my computer. But if you're just accessing a website, you will have no idea what that is being hosted. So that is one example. Another example that also is possible to do with ownership it's a temporary chat room. You open the chat room, you get a URL, you put it on the top browser, and then you can share with other people. And then the people who join, that everybody becomes, you know, like they can be chatting. Everything that happens there, everybody, uh, there is no real metadata being logged, and everything goes away in the moment you close that app. There is another app for chat as well, called Ricochet. And with Ricochet, there is no server. Signal has a server, right? Like, which is like the broker of the message, right? (laughs) (laughs) Passing it here and there and so forth. In this case, there is no server. Like uh, everybody, like uh, I would be my own server, you would be your own server. And I become our own address on the internet in the chat room, right? Like, so I, I, for you to add me as an account, a contact on your chat, I need to give you my own address, you know? And so there is no account creation. I can change their own address anytime if I don't want nobody to like know that their own address is me anymore. I can create a new one anytime I want, right? But like uh, the only thing that associates with me is their own address, but there is no way to track where their address is coming from, where I am, and who, if it is 
for real me or anything like that. The only way to trust that I gave you, right? Like that you receive it directly from me. So that is not a co-creation. Like on Signal, you need to give your phone. So that is a, it's still information being there that tracks back to you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so anyway, so those are very interesting ways of building the tools that me and you use every day but design it differently from how people have been designing so far, right? So to prove that technology has no barriers, right? Like it is possible if you think outside of the box, right? Like if you think that your end goal is indeed to just give a file from person A to person B and not to track everything that happened in that transaction, you know? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to follow on a lot of those points, but I want to go back just a little bit Back to Tor, actually, and, and it's kind of its founding here. Help me understand its earliest days. Basically, when was it created and also why? Like, what was the need at the time? Yeah, so Tor, actually, the Onion Rotor is a project that actually came from the USA Navy, right? Like the military. And this is funny. That's why I was like uh, laughing when you were asking me about Tor, because I was like, I'm talking like about, oh, hey, you know, like you need to really be careful about who to trust, right? Like, and this is not a secret. This is like, I think it's funny because people really, when you say those words, people already say like, what? So the U.S. Naval Research Lab, the like uh, they wrote a paper in the 90s about onion roting because it came from, indeed, the building a way that would allow people to be anonymous on the internet. At the time, Roger and Nick, Roger Dingadai and Nick Matheson, the two founders of the Tor Project nonprofit, which right, like I worked for, <laughs> they were interns at NRL and okay. um, they left NRL. One of the failures point of uh, what NRL was building was that was controlled by NRL. You know, like they were like, there is no way to be real anonymous if the network has one point of control, you know, like one right, like a point that can see it all. And it has to be designed in a way that nobody has that, you know. So they decided to found the Tor Project nonprofit in 2003 with the help of, uh, in 2004, I'm sorry, with the help of uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation. They work on Tor, they build the Tor, they created the, the, the nonprofit. And what changed it was two things, right? Like one of the things here is that the code, everything is open source. And since the moment Tor was created, there are hundreds of papers being written and published about Tor. So that means we have a huge scientific community looking at this and saying what is wrong with it, what you should not, you know, like what we should care about it, you know, like what we should change about it, which is great for us. Cause like, this is like a company to pay for such a resource that we spend like millions of dollars to get that type of like, you know, like feedback on the things that you're building and reveal. And we do follow and we do uh, the reason Thor has so many defenses and it's so great is because of that type of help that we get from this community. Mm -hmm. Another thing, from the beginning, right? Like, and that I'm uh, talking back to the points I was saying that people should evaluate. We, as the nonprofit, all we're doing is building the code. We don't control the network at all. Like, there is no way that we know what's happening on the network, who are our users, or, you know, what they're doing. People can be watching what's happening on the exit nodes, what folks are ac accessing, right? ISP would know if you're accessing Tor. Or analytics is very like follow is, is stricted protocols for privacy. So we, if you ask me how many users are on the Tor network today, we don't count them, and we, we have estimation. So and depends on the way you count because that's like the way we have been counting on our metrics website. And there has been a paper written by some folks who did develop a privacy preserving mechanism to count users at Tor as well. So we do nowadays count around like uh, 2 million people, an average of 2 million people, 2 million connections per day. This other one counted 8 million. I really don't know. I don't even know if it, these connections are people, are robots, what they are, you know, <laughs> like of the files being, you know, extended on onion shares, you know, like, I don't know. Like that is like, so we have very little information or overseeing of what's going on. And that's the point. 
you know, the point here, like, we don't want to have that either, you know, like, and we designed it to be that way. Yeah, it's similar. That kind of design process is also what you see in, like, motivation in a company like Signal, right? Where they say, look, they, you know, they have received requests from law enforcement for messages. And Signal says, look, it's built into the way that we can't produce those records. We don't have access to them or they don't exist. Um, I forget, a little of both. You can't have access to something that doesn't exist. And yeah, it's just designing something different in a different way for still having that same end goal. I wanted to go back to something we were saying earlier where we were kind of getting into what I thought were quite fascinating uses of the Onion service. And you were telling me about generating, you know, random URLs, you know, for for file sharing, temporary chat rooms. And I was excited about, you know, that tool Ricochet. And to me, right, I am excited by these things. I think, oh, these things are cool. I think after we're done with this podcast, I'm going to look these things up. And I'll be like, oh, maybe I'll use that one time in a million, right? Because I maybe I don't have to use it every day. But what I want to get at here is, while I may think that these things are cool, while I may think that these things are worth looking up and learning, you know, there's a there's a learning curve. There's probably a lot of folks out there who are hearing these things and saying, wow, that is way more than I am willing to to dive into. That's above my understanding. That's above my patience. And also, it might be above what I even find necessary to stay private online. People might have different definitions of what they're trying to keep private. And that's extremely normal. That's actually expected. And so to err away from any like privacy nihilism, right? In which listeners kind of give up on privacy because they feel like they can't manage that many variables. I wanted to steer into let's getting some actionable advice. And I wanted to ask, how can people stay as private as they would like to be online? Where do they start with that? Yes, I think like uh, I would say I agree with you a hundred percent. Just right, like uh, <laughs> I never is the same thing for everybody, and everybody would have different needs, you know. So we even have our, like we do trainings at Tor too, and there is one that's called like uh, the diet, right? Like we have a diet training. So like you try one thing every week, so you don't get too overwhelmed. You know, <laughs> it's like getting to a diet, right? Like you cut carbs, like not all of it, but you cut bread in the morning, you know. Like so, anyways, I would say something like that, right? Like I, I definitely would suggest, for instance, tight privacy at the beginning with security. Right, let, let's get let's tie that together for a second. So, like, let's try to access websites that had the little locker on the browser, right? If you, you want peace of mind and not want to care about that too much, just install a plugin that will force those connections for you. You know, like also there are other plugins out there that also force like some cleanups as a you know like. The one for Facebook that Firefox created, that is great, you know, that really isolate and impede Facebook from like watching what you're doing beyond the Facebook tab, you know, so that's cool. So I feel like those are very like no interference type of thing that you can have, you know, like going on. Another thing that I would say is that, for instance, you can try, I would open top browser and try top browser on moments that you want to do a search that you want it to be more private. We use the the Go, which is a great service as well that, you know, has privacy as part of the business model, the design mindset and all of that, right? Like, so I feel like just try doing that. And sometimes I tell people you might, even if you don't think you need to browser, the fact that you have open on your computer with another browser or whatever is helping other people who actually need to browser because privacy loves wow. anonymity, loves company. So like only by having that thing open, you're helping, you know, like, but get used to, to go there for a certain search, you know, like instead of yeah. like a private tab, for instance, which is will be way more protective for, you know, like for you. And you can go slow also. I, another thing I want to emphasize, like tying up privacy with security stronger passwords you know like different passwords don't use the same thing all the time so this is another little exercise that would advise people those are are, are tied up with uh, privacy in a way sometimes also i feel like people might believe 
you know, like, uh, oh, I'm not in a situation that of like, uh, I need to be protective of my certain information and, you know, my online behavior, you know, like, I don't have censorship. I don't believe I'm being monitored in a way, you know, like, because of politics or anything like that. But like, in other words, I'm privileged. I have nothing to worry about, you know, like I'm just browsing the internet. But there is still, you know, like folks who are just tired of the ads, you know, like just tired of them hunting them down forever, right? Like, or don't want to have to worry about, oh my God, if I do look for this, I can never open my computer in public again, you know, because like, I don't know what ads are going to pop out, you know, like, yeah. so... Anyway, so like there are different needs indeed uh, for that type of like respect, right? Like uh, go, receiving a little bit of respect for the actions that you're doing online. I'm not talking about, you know, being persecuted or anything. I'm just like human beings who want a little bit of respect for the, like if, don't observe me when I'm doing this, you know? Like, so I think uh, that it's a completely valid need, like I said, right? Like it goes back to one thing that we say, privacy is a human right, you know, like, you had the right to have that need. You know, like, I don't want you watching me, you know? So I want to say these things, but I also want to leave people with a message because I feel like we, especially at the top browser, we are the top browser. We are in the business of like providing the best way that people can have, you know, security, privacy, be anonymous online. You know, that's, that's everything we aim for. But I think that, the world actually really needs everything, right? Like, and I want to bring that to people, right? Like, uh, if it today you see big companies even articulating features that we used to have in top browser for 20 years now, you know, like talking about things that we've been, you know, saying they are important, you know, it should be respected. And today, big companies are also mentioning those things. It's because of demand from the people. It's because people are demanding more privacy. People are demanding respect for the data. Legislators are listening, not being perfect yet, but like building laws that are forcing also technology to be designed in a different way or thinking in a different way. So I think, yes, use the browser. Yes, use tools. Yes, look for your privacy, but don't be satisfied with that. I think uh, we deserve, you know, to have technology being built in a way that uh, respect our human rights for privacy, you know? Yeah, I really loved the way that you immediately said tie security to privacy, right? Because they are related topics. And I think sometimes they get kind of wrenched apart and they shouldn't having better security can lead to better privacy, you know, like using better passwords, which is a security thing can also help prevent privacy invasions in a different way that we think about it in in straight up, you know, just like hacking, getting your account compromised. It's easier to do that if you have a terrible password. And that's a route, you know, that's a way to have your privacy invaded. And it's just it's just a really nice, simple framing that I wish we adopted kind of more often. I, I also really enjoyed the way you brought it into like, just do what's simple, right? If we've talked about things and you're listening and you're like, I don't even know where to start that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to start with it. Start with the things that you know you do every single day. Like you said, if, if there's a search that you want to keep particularly private, you can use Tor Browser. You can use DuckDuckGo. If you want to move beyond that, you know, the thing that we use every single day, if we're like on a, on a desktop or on a laptop, a browser, you know, you can switch browsers and get, honestly, an extraordinarily similar experience to probably your your default browser. I've switched browsers like a bunch of times. I like switching browsers. And they're almost always like 90% the same. It's like little things that might change. It's, it's actually very easy to do. It's surprisingly easy to do. I wanted to close here because you were talking a lot about, you know, we should have things that are designed for our human rights, designed for our privacy. There's a big question. Uh, if we were to rebuild the internet from scratch, right, what would a truly private internet look like? Yes, I think like, um, all right, so a truly private, I feel like, right, like the, the, let, me, let me answer the question shifting a little bit to another, the root of the problem. I feel like yeah. when the internet was being built, the business model that was applied to it, you know, was replicating by the people who were investing on it who have invested on other, you know, media before and they thought like, okay, I need to make money. First of all, right, like they throw it money on anything that was being built uh, when the internet started. That was like the first boom, right? Like all the investment on a bunch of startups 
whatever you're building, I'm going to throw my money on. And then some of those survive and they're like, okay, how I make money out of those? And then they start like, okay, uh, you need to give back. So they started immediately applying what they did with all the other communication means in the past, which was advertising, you know. And if you look at the history of advertising or PR, you know, like public relations or whatever that is related about understanding people's emotions and behavior to offer them something in the moment that is, you know, opportunistic for them to receive the message, right? Like, and, and uh, consume the message. So over time, I always joke, you know, like that you went from a billboard on the road saying drink soda to someone knocking at the door saying my algorithm shows 80% of chance that right at this hour after lunch you are looking for soda so he's a soda you know so like <laughs> it went straight to that you know like so with with uh, in the internet and the data that was creating and I work in the business I work in the industry and I saw those light bulbs moments of like oh we can actually sell the fire horse or data, you know, from our service to other parties who are either selling to other parties and doing or whatever with it, you know, like, and this is, uh, I think, um, right, like going back to your question, right, like, why, why, why <laughs> develop this way, right, like, what was the intention behind it, what shape it, you know, like, and there's no Wondering, we call it capitalist surveillance. You know, the motivation here has been always been money, profit, you know, and growth of fortunes, you know, like of uh, billionaires and millionaires making more of that. And I'm being honest, right? Like, so I, I'm not saying like people should not make a living. Yes, there's a way to make a living on the internet, you know, but I'm saying that this is kind of like the climate change issue that we have on the virtual world, you know. And uh, I feel that right now we need to rethink this. We need to rethink these roots. You know, it's the same way in, back in the 80s or the 90s where people were talking about the automobile industry. And there was this huge lob about, oh, we can never be electric cars and whatever. And now we have that, you know. Like, so, so I feel like even that is a denial in the industry that is hard or whatever, we need to like really think about the future of the online world and the digital world if we don't make, you know, like this call right now and today about how technology is built, what data is being created, is necessary to, like data diet, right? Like it's necessary to even exist, you know, like, and what is the mechanisms out there that protect and, and takes it very serious, not just thinking, oh, it's just data, it's just like a, a timestamp. No, it's my human right. It should be very serious, you know? So I, I can go on and on on this point, right? Like we need to look at what went wrong in the past, what brought us here. Sometimes I was talking with a journalist one time and the world really focused on, unfortunately, right? Like focus on protecting someone's identity online could let allow people to commit illegal activities online. You know, like mm. really focus on like, oh, this technology can enable this and that and the other one. And then I told the journalist, I was like, I think I'm beyond, like better than be talking about speculation, what you are believing will happen if it is like this. I would prefer to talk about why a tool like Tor had to exist, had to be built to begin with. Why we had to build a tool like Tor. Why we had to create it. Why we had to create a way for people to preserve their identity online, to be able to access information without knowing that they are doing it. You know, and which is a very basic principle that goes back to the libraries to begin with. You know, <laughs> so why we had to create it? Why was the need for it to exist? Let's talk about the source of the problem and. I think learning from that, you know, like what should not be the internet it will help us design things with the right motivations in place. I can give you another example so it's easy for people. A lot of abuse mechanisms today based on people IP addresses, right? So if I'm using Tor, I will have a bad experience because I might see captures or like in my email account, client might freak out thinking like what you come from another you know like computer another place what's going on that only makes the user experience worse who are trying to protect themselves and using servers like Tor. that is way for you to build anti-abuse mechanisms that is not based on that you know like you can still protect their servers and you can still provide a good experience for someone who's using a service like Tor. you know like not only Tor vpn or the private relay network from Apple now that they have whatever, you know, like, but that, you know, that type of experience, you know, so 
build it differently, make it differently, you know, like, so you can accommodate this type of experience and that type of experience becomes normal, you know, like, so just, uh, I'm going to leave it that way for like a few examples of like how we can get there, right? I like that you immediately brought up the counter example, the counter response, right? Where you're saying like, yeah, well, you know, like my email client might be like on the fritz. It might be like, oh, why are you coming from like a different computer every single day or, you know, multiple times a day? And then the response to that is like, well, why, why have we built a system that can't respond to this in a seamless way? Why have we still built something that sees legitimate protections of privacy as obstacles, it sounds like? I enjoy that because I just never, I had never heard that before. I never heard, well, let me put the, well, actually, why is it this way? You know, uh, and it's such a simple question, but I think it's really powerful. That's all. Yeah, so we're thinking about, about problems like that, you know, at all. We're thinking about how to solve and collaborate with others to solve this type of problems, you know, to make it normal, right? Like I, I try to say like, uh, don't criminalize, optimize, you know, <laughs> this type of, <laughs> of behavior, you know, like don't make, don't believe that, because it's changing the IP address is malicious, you know, like think, thinking differently about it, you know? Yeah. Isabella, I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's show. Thank you, David. I really like the conversation. I appreciate the invitation too. To our listeners at home, a couple of things. If you wanted to learn more about that issue that Isabella and I briefly discussed about ExpressVPN and one of its current executives helping build a surveillance mechanism for another country, you can hear all about it on our most prior episode of this podcast. It's called ExpressVPN Made a Choice, and so have I. Also, you can learn more about Tor at www.torproject.org. And finally, as always, we will talk to you again in two weeks. Before our next episode, we speak with Jess Dodson about why we struggle so much with the cybersecurity basics. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.